Paracast, with your hosts Gene Steinberg and David Pietri. Scott, the prevailing theory in the quote-unquote modern ufology field of study is that the current contemporary wave of UFO activity started in 1947. You would take exception to that, wouldn't you? Oh, yes. Uh, well, it depends on how you define wave. Uh, yes, in 1947, for a variety of reasons, Kenneth Arnold, uh, Roswell, etc., the uh, phenomenon sort of surfaced in the popular mind. But I'm convinced that it's been around not only for decades, but uh, centuries and indeed millennia. So mm-hmm. we go on from there. But you personally had an experience that was your introduction to the whole field. I've had several, actually, several sightings. Uh, The one I think you're referring to is a very famous episode, almost a quasi-legendary episode, uh, that has come to be called the Battle of Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. In February 25th, and the wee hours of February 25th, 1942, when a mysterious or anomalous object that we all thought initially was a Japanese observation plane, remember this is three, less than three months after Pearl Harbor, cruised across the skies of Southern California, actually over the the western edge of it, uh, along the ocean, and that's where I saw it, and ignored, totally blithely ignored, over 1,400 rounds of anti-aircraft fire directed at it, and uh, thwarted in one way or another uh, at least two squadrons of fighters that were sent up after it, by the way, the government has steadfastly claimed that there were no uh, planes in the sky that night, but that's totally incorrect. Of course, they but just any, shoot at nothing. That's right. Uh, there's, it was all just hysteria. There's even a theory that it was a flock of seabirds flying, <laughs> a very remarkably flak-resistant seabirds were flying, <laughs> or a uh, an errant barrage balloon from uh, one of the aircraft factories that were the, those days they had them tethered over the aircraft factory. To Those end. wayward balloons, you know, you got to yeah. watch out for them. I have to tell oh, everybody, yeah. by the way, contrary to popular opinion, I was not alive in 1942. Well, I was, unfortunately. Uh, I, wish, I wish I could say the same as you, but yes, I was eight years old. And uh, saw, I saw the object. I watched it with open, an open mouth in front of my house. Uh, family home in Hermosa Beach, California. I'm a native Californian, by the way, uh, and grew up, spent my most of my early years in Hermosa Beach. It's all a beach rat as well as native <laughs> California. But in any event, we stood out on the strand looking up at this object that was almost dead overhead. It was uh, pinpointed by searchlights. And it was an amazing piece of theater, and it drove home the fact that, hey, there is a war on here. It moved slowly, almost in a stately fashion, I would guess, at about eight, between four and 8,000 feet. Remember, I'm, I'm thinking back from age eight, but I, it's a very, very vivid memory. We watched it come south from the direction of Manhattan Beach. 
I was to give you where I don't for those of your audience that know Southern California particularly know this area. Our house was at 2,500 Strand in Hermosa Beach. I mention that because I'm plugging a book. I hope you don't mind. No, I have no. just published a memoir with Red Pill Press called 2500 Strand, subtitle, Growing Up in Hermosa Beach, California During World War II. It's about, the, it focuses on the five years from March of 1941 to effectively March of 1946, right after the war, when my father made the biggest mistake in history and sold that house right on the strand. That's another story, but I, I cry every time I see it. But anyway, that's what, so it, there is a chapter in the book, in the memoir, entitled simply The Battle of Los Angeles, so anyone can follow. It's, I have to say, it, it just went off Amazon for advance orders. It actually hasn't been published yet. The publisher is, the, is Red Pill Press. It's a Canadian, small Canadian publisher that is uh, very aggressive, and they publish uh, quite a lot of stuff that people that listen to the Paracast would be interested, may be familiar with. Uh, they publish a lot of uh, Laura Knight Jazdick's books. Do you know yeah, her? I, yeah, unfortunately, I've done research on her, and uh, I can't say I've come away impressed, but let's get back to well, I know her, but uh, I, I, yeah, I no. have mixed feelings, but go ahead. Yeah, tonight, Scott, we're talking about you and your experiences. Yeah, that's right. End of plug. <laughs> right. Okay. But I, uh, as I said, I watched this thing cruise slowly overhead. And, uh, in fact, it even see, appeared to hover briefly over our house, or right over, over, not over the house, just over the ocean. We were just over the edge of the water, slightly to our west. I watched this lozenge-shaped thing. My mother and I watched it, my late mother and I watched it together. It was a, uh, it looked like a, a kind of an oblong, glowing, the best way I put it would be a lozenge. Uh, it wasn't exactly saucer-shaped, but we were looking at it probably edge-on, or looking at the the uh, at the ventral side of it up there it finally it, it stalled for a moment you see the shells exploding all around it uh, but not phasing it we watched this object fly south from the direction of Manhattan Beach over the edge of the ocean again at about four, between four and 8,000 feet, the best I can estimate it, but that others have estimated it at that height too. And uh, it hovered briefly over, almost directly overhead, over our house where we were watching it or over the water in front of our house. And then slowly, again slowly, it was not zipping at all, slowly moved on south and then began to cut, to veer inland oh, and disappeared over what would be the, over, well, it must have been Redondo Beach. And it seemed to be losing altitude at that point. But then we, that's where we lost sight of it. But uh, both before we saw it and afterward, uh, all of this is, by the way, between about two, four, about three o'clock to quarter of four in the morning, uh, February 25th, uh, 42. And we saw a, a flight of interceptors of air, uh, obviously clearly American planes 
came the same direction after it after it had we'd lost sight of it a few minutes later a flight of several uh, I can't give you the exact number but three or four at least four planes clearly piston engine airplanes American planes we could see them followed it went in the same direction we had also heard planes earlier before we saw it now I could back up a little bit and say that uh, almost from a few weeks or so after the war began, the uh, anti-aircraft uh, batteries that had been hastily put into place from Malibu down to Palos Verdes along the coast used to practice every practically every night, every evening. Uh, they would fire at a drone, the target pulled behind a plane well out over the ocean. And the searchlight batteries would follow it, and uh, they, this would usually last for about half an hour or so. They usually tried to end it by around 10 o'clock in the evening, uh, so as you know not to disturb the, the locals too much. But we got so used to hearing the bang, 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 bang of anti-aircraft guns firing at night at this that it almost became like the sound of the ocean. What woke me up that morning at about 3 o'clock was that the guns were going with a greater intensity, and I looked out my window, sort of on an oblique angle to the water, my bedroom window, and saw the very bright searchlights. It was normally in a normal training thing. We all knew what they were. It would be well out to sea. And so, as I said, we were used to the, the lights and the anti-aircraft guns, but then I looked at a clock and I said, what are they doing at 3 in the morning? And my father, who was an air raid warden, everybody kind of gathered what's going on. No one, of course, the whole civil defense system, at least in our area, fell apart. Nobody called in, but he put his air raid warden helmet and said, I think this may be... This may be the real thing. This is not a drill. And uh, we had a little bomb shelter in our basement. It was three stories in the front that were uh, we built from uh, uh, my father. I helped him as a kid. Uh, my mother and father built that were uh, with cartons, cardboard cartons piled against uh, some dressing rooms. Remember, this was a beach house. Some dressing rooms. There was open basement on either side. My father started building that on the afternoon of December 7th because we'd all, a year earlier, knew what had happened to London and so on. And we figured, okay, it's our turn. And what happened to Pearl Harbor? Right. We, For the first couple of months, the first two or three months, many of us were convinced that the Imperial Fleet was just over the horizon with its aircraft carriers. And so we had a lot of reason to be to build a bomb shelter, and we went down there. But my mother said she got... Uh, she, the claustrophobia in these little rooms got to her and I snuck out behind her to see what the hell was going on up there and that's how I, I, I saw it meanwhile my father was out trying making enforcing a, a blackout that nobody had ordered but it was obvious that it should be what, what a good it did the consensus at the time was that it had to have been a Japanese observation. We didn't use the word Japanese, but that uh, that was then. Observation plane. We said Jap. Observation plane. And who knew what was uh, what it was looking for, and that the main force would be coming shortly. Remember, about less than 48 hours earlier, a Japanese submarine had shelled some oil installations up north of Santa Barbara. So people were jittery. Uh, mm -hmm. One and only time the United States the 
continental United States has been fired upon since the War of 1812. And so, you know, people were nervous. But nobody, the point here is that no one made the connection that it could have been a an extraterrestrial craft, a UFO. The word UFO hadn't been coined or flying saucer or anything. That would be right. five years later. So we didn't have that framework, you know, to what I'm I'm glossing it as a UFO, as a probable, probably, I would say the most the most efficient explanation is that. Well, it was an un- unidentified flying an object. An unidentified flying object that has right. no relationship to anything terrestrial at that point in time. So, Well, you know. along those lines, Scott, yeah. how, what do you estimate the size of this craft was? And, and in a corollary question, you say you saw it glowing. Yes. What color was it, and did that glow no. modulate? Well, okay, um, you're saying it, was, it glowed silver, metallic? Mm-hmm. Metallic, very bright, shining. I mean, it was clearly illuminated. Now, mm-hmm. don't forget, it was also pinpointed in uh, searchlight beams. Right. At least six or seven searchlight beams were tracking it. But it had its own illumination. That was obvious. It wasn't mm-hmm. just the, the searchlights. Did, uh, that, did, they, that glow, did that glow modulate at all, Scott, or was no. it a consistent brightness? Consistent. What I saw was consistent, very bright silver shining, best way to put it, is glowing silver. I saw no color at all. Other observed, now, obviously I've researched this and over the years, Mm -hmm. a number of witnesses did notice uh, red, did notice orange, and so on. And uh, I, I didn't, we didn't see any color at all other than silver, this elongated, my mother used to say it looked like a bug up there, uh, out of a little slug. How big a bug, by the way? Uh, well, uh, how big? From our distance, from uh, estimating just sort of visually, it would have been about the size of the first joint of my finger uh, as an eight-year-old. So it was fair size up there, but of course it's it's eight, probably somewhere between, as I said, four, five, six, maybe probably as high, maybe as high as eight. It dropped down, as I said, as it went past from our field of vision, it descended. Not to the ground, but it, 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 it lost altitude. Now, some estimates of it. Now, who was it? Uh, Bruce McAbee thinks from the photographic evidence, the one photograph that we, uh, as you know, may know, there is a famous L.A. Absolutely. Photograph. Sure, sure. And take, taken by a, a photographer. And uh, Times photographer, reporter with a with a probably a speed graphic, who lived in the San Gabriel Valley. We know that much, and uh, was somehow heard this was happening and roared, drove west toward the sound of the guns, and caught it almost certainly as it was lifting over the Baldwin Hills. Now this would be a little bit before we saw it. This would have been 2.30, 10 minutes of 3 or something of that sort, 2.45. It had come down from Santa Monica, over the Santa Monica Mountains. It was picked up, we, we now know, on radar, sort of off Santa Barbara, that area. It came or off Ventura, probably be better. It mm-hmm. was came over the Santa Monica Mountains, over uh, called Santa Monica, Culver City, and lifted over the, uh, the Baldwin Hills that separate Culver City from Inglewood, and then headed west. The, its trajectory headed west over El Segundo. 
uh, and which was which interestingly enough is where of course all the aircraft plants were <laughs> Douglas North American I think most of you know that I love radio, and so I decide to look for the ultimate receiver for AM reception because I want outstanding AM reception, day and night, especially night where it gets difficult. So I've discovered that C-Crane CC Radio Plus has earned the reputation of having the best AM reception, which is exactly what C-Crane intended when they designed this gem of a radio. Along with its legendary AM reception, it also has excellent FM reception, a weather band, TV audio, and the ability to run on batteries for, and listen to this, 250 hours. So whether you use it as your bedside radio in your kitchen or at work, the CC Radio Plus will give you the pleasure of clear AM reception. The radio is designed for the clarity of the human voice and the benefits of useful features like five memory buttons per band. They work just like memory buttons in your car, a sleep timer, an alarm clock so you can get up at the right time, and a weather alert that now works as an all-hazards alarm. You know what I want you to do? I want you to buy that radio, but also support this show by visiting techbroadcasting.com slash ccrane. That's techbroadcasting.com slash ccrane to order the CC Radio Plus for $164.95, and that includes free ground shipping and a free ccrane catalog. Place your order today. Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast. tell our listeners you're on the PowerCast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney, and we're talking to Scott Littleton. He is a professor of anthropology emeritus, which means he's kind of retired or sort of retired. And we're talking first, and he has a wide range of interests, by the way, ladies and gentlemen. This is only the beginning, but we're talking about, of course, the Battle of Los Angeles, February 25th, 1942, which he remembers as an eight-year-old child. Now, you're describing its motion, its trajectory. How long was it visible before this thing came out of visibility? Uh, I'm, I'm not quite sure I follow you, Gene. What, are are How, you talking about yeah. my own experience or what the sum total of witnesses have been? Well, let's go both there how long did, was it within your field of view oh, in my field of vision about 20 minutes or less but the in turn from we have witnesses we've discovered witnesses in both Santa Monica and in the Walden in Culver City who saw it uh, and these saw it go over the hill 
And I'm convinced that it was at this point that the famous picture, the newspaper photograph was taken, where it's much lower. It's going up over the ball. There are some, some researchers have, have said, no, it has to be Palos Verdes or, or something. No, I'm pretty sure it's because I think I've identified the notch. Uh, the spot where it where it went over. Uh, Frank Warren agrees with this. We and I have been working on this. Now, uh, the s- several people saw it up at approximately that point and noted uh, an orange glow on the underside and so on. So this is yes, there are people who saw different colors. We did not. It had a, a, it it clearly had gained altitude by the time we saw it. Now, as to the size, as I started to say, Bruce Maccabee, whom some of your listeners may know. He's uh, been a guest on the show. He's I'm sure he I noticed that. Yeah. He's been a oh, guest. Yeah. He's a, a brilliant photo analyst and Absolutely. Uh, fascinating, fascinating guy. I like him. I know him personally and so on. Bruce uh, suggested by from looking at the light cones of the dispersal, the light cone of the uh, of the searchlight beams, that we know pretty much where at least one of them came from Manhattan Beach, from a searchlight battery in Manhattan Beach, and given the three or four miles the inland distance, Bruce uh, thinks it was maybe somewhere around 300 feet in diameter. Uh, it does, by the way, look sort of almost like a classic uh, disc mm-hmm. with a little a knob on top in that right. photograph. Now, that remember, photo, yeah. we didn't, I didn't see any clear configuration except an oblong lozenge. But nevertheless, he thinks it's about 300 feet. However, Frank, Frank Warren, has estimated it on from other bases. Frank, Frank thinks it might have been as big as 800 feet in diameter. So it was a large object, uh, somewhere, say, between 300 and 800 Well, let's feet. qualify this, Scott. We, it, yeah. At the time, we technologically had nothing remotely close to that size in the air. Oh, oh, no. Uh, about the right. only thing, yeah, well, let, let me qualify that. Except for maybe a, maybe a Zeppelin. Yeah, uh, you're, you're way ahead of right. exactly right. right. The, Hinden, right. It, my, the Hindenburg might have been about the same size, but it had done its thing by then. And nobody was flying uh, Zeppelins over Southern California in 1942. They were a dead issue. So that was certainly be, none that could absorb anti-aircraft right. fire. It would have been that uh, too. In yeah. fact, some of us, some of us at the time afterwards, spec. Remember, kids were speculating. Hey, do the Japs have some plane that, that resists flak? You know, because or the well, we thought at the time. Again, at the time, not only either it it was flak resistant or our gunners were awful, and a lot of people thought these like, guys. Yeah, what? No, no. I Unlikely mean, that that was the case. The after-action report officially said 1,430 rounds of ammunition were fired. Now, I think it was a lot more. My own hunch is that it was closer to 2,000. And, of course, the government has always maintained that it was all hysteria. They were really firing at nothing. Right. <laughs> I mean, here's, a que- here's a question for you, Scott. Yeah. You and your mother... Mm-hmm. Are watching this. You're watching. Right. You're watching these. Mm-hmm. Essentially, this fire upon this craft. Did you right. see any kind of uh, visual artifacts of shells bouncing off of this? Or no, I saw explosions. You saw explosions well, around this. First, shells around. Okay. It. Yeah. Uh-huh. Just okay. as you will see, you will see the same burst pattern in the photograph. The famous Times 
which ran the 26th. You probably are familiar with this photograph. Absolutely, right? sure, yeah. sure. At, and those yeah. little white dots surrounding the object almost have to be bursting shells. Shells popping off in there, Popping yeah. off, and uh, in very close to it. And we won, we saw we saw this thing, boom, 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 all and to think about why are they missing it, you know? And it just blithely ignored them and moved on. In fact, it, as I said, I swear uh, no one else that I know of has ever know, said this except me. But at the point where it, it came to our field, and maybe it wanted to just stay and look at me, I don't know, but it hovered. It, it stopped for maybe for 30 seconds or so and then continued on but it so they had a stationary object to hit yeah uh and so we used to say these guys need a lot you know well well, what if you know uh the japs come back for real or are we they're gonna have just a cakewalk in here because these guys can't hit the side of a barn door well uh, subsequently, of course, obviously, or many of your listeners will be way ahead of me, that my hunch is that there was probably some kind of an EMF, some kind of a force field around the thing that shunted a field that it was it was protected against this kind now, of thing. Now, we assume, Scott, because you're, you're in this... Little, there, uh, let me add a little... Right. Because we can pick this up in a minute, but let me just say that it's not impossible that the sum total of all that they threw at it may have actually damaged it, because there, here we get into the realm of folklore and rumors. So let's, I'll, let me get to that in a moment. Okay, I just wanted to lay the basis for that. Right. Yeah, go ahead. I'm just assuming from your description that because of all the gunfire going on, right. you don't have an explicit memory of whether or not this thing made any sound. None, because between bursts, every the burst, it would mean it would be burst and burst and burst, but between bursts, it made no sound. No, uh, there was, to the best of my knowledge, best of my recollection, there was no sound and this is something corroborated by other witnesses that have that can later came forward that have been discovered uh nobody heard any sound okay any sound other than the the explosion and the explosions mm-hmm. and when this started to move away mm-hmm. uh, about what speed would you say it was doing tr- given the, the the size and the height of it if you had to guess at a speed uh what speed was it going at? and and a more important question did it gradually accelerate to speed or or did it just go right to just speed? gradually it just started moving again uh-huh. best way to put it moving at the same remember we saw it come south we picked it up looking north it gets roughly to the area around 25th and strand in hermosa beach and Hovers, sits there. I'm looking at this thing sitting there for maybe a day between 20 and 30, 20 and 30 seconds, right. and then it just starts moving again at about the same speed. Uh, I would say 30, 40 miles an hour. Uh, it was not moving fast Slow. at all. It was it was cruising. That's the way I use it. it was moving. It wasn't. I never saw it zip away or anything like that. It the the whole thing was very slow. Now, yeah. you said you saw fighter planes engage yes. them, so let's talk about yes. that a little bit. What yep. did you see exactly? Uh, we heard them come, and I saw them uh, overhead flying, following in essentially the same direction that the object had taken, and they d- again disappeared over Redondo Beach. In other words, they were clearly following it. The At that point, the gunfire had stopped. 
So, I mean, obviously they weren't shooting at the, our planes, but they mm-hmm. were Ameri- our planes. We recog- My mother recognized them immediately uh, because she riveted, she was Rosie the Riveter. She riveted wingtips of Douglas SPD dive bombers at the Douglas plant on the graveyard ship, bandana and all. And uh, she those are SPDs. <laughs> I mean, we, she, we, she could recognize, we recognized right. the configuration. Uh, now, I may not have been at, but they certainly were American interceptors that aren't, of course, have never been acknowledged. Now, we heard heard them twice. I heard when I first woke up, etc., we heard the sound of planes before we saw it, never saw them. I saw, we heard aircraft in the sky because we were very familiar with aircraft. But, oh, by the way, as you probably know, all civilian pilots were banned from the Southern California skies uh, on December 8th. So you know, if it was a private pilot, he was weird. He was there yeah, oh, yeah. were no private aviation. All right. So we had saw we saw military planes all the time. Uh, there, on Christmas Day, 1941, uh, a Japanese submarine torpedoed the fishing barge off Redondo Beach, and oh, my mother almost dropped the turkey bringing it in to the Christmas dinner. And we all rushed to the windows that looked out of the oven. We saw the barge split in half, and within a few minutes, uh, dive bomb torpedo planes were flying over, dropping depth charges. And we watched this for a watch, the, you know, the water rushing up. They heard the explosions. Whether they got this up or not, who knows. But So, you know, we saw planes overhead, uh, fighter planes and whatnot, military aircraft. And these were clearly military aircraft heading... Uh, in the direction of the, well, over, if you go past Redondo, you go toward Wilmington, toward Long Beach. They were heading in that direction. And what's interesting is that this was still dark. Now, we didn't have much in the way of night fighters at that point. This has been a fascinating, I've been playing around with this, doing researching on this. Uh, they really took a chance sending these planes up. Because, I mean, night fighters didn't really begin to come in for another year or so. Mm-hmm. In the, and, but nevertheless, though, they must have really wanted to, to do something with this thing. Be to send planes up in the dark, right? Uh, and which is, people have said, well, they couldn't have been up there because there were no night fighters. Well, there were that night. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it, it's, uh, Extraordinary circumstances. It, yeah, it yeah. was. Now, I don't know whether you're familiar with this aspect of it, but there is a very strong probability that at least one Ameri- one and possibly two of our planes were forced down that night. Whoa. I'll tell you what, I want. now you just raise a cliffhanger. Today, whether you're in business or simply want to share something with friends or family, email and voicemail sometimes just aren't enough. That's why you should try GoToMeeting, a web conferencing solution that will revolutionize how you communicate with your business associates, family, and friends. The ability to host online meetings is an absolute must for today's business. With GoToMeeting.com, it's just like you're all in the same room. Unlimited meetings for one flat rate means you can meet as often as you want for as long as you need. Try it yourself, free for 30 days. Just visit gotomeeting.com forward slash tech podcasts. That's gotomeeting.com forward slash tech podcasts. Try GoToMeeting free today.
You are Luke Anarchist with Jesus and Luke and David Piedi. You never know what's going to happen next. On the Paracast, Scott Littleton joining us. We're talking about the Battle of 1942, which may have been one of the early sightings of a UFO, and we're getting deep and dirty into it. Okay, forcing craft down. Hmm. Okay, explain. Uh, here, here, all right. First of all, in the in a screaming headline, the uh, that morning, the Los Angeles Examiner, which was the local Hearst morning paper, and. You know what, what all of that meant. They, you know, they were not above inventing news, but nevertheless, there was this screaming headline. And I have my family, and I preserved the paper, and I still have it in my collection. The headline is Los Angeles bombed, bang, and plane, Jap plane shot the enemy. Plane was a Jap or enemy shot down on Vermont on South Vermont Avenue. All right, so uh, the the. The reporter in the story claims to have gotten it from the 77th Division Police uh, in South Los Angeles, South L.A., and the, it was the, around 180th Street. In other words, well south. In those days, this was kind of not rural, but you know, it wasn't, let's say, as crowded as anywhere near as it is today, uh, heading in the direction of San Pedro, about 180th Street in Vermont and South Vermont. Well... That we thought, oh, that's just, you know, Hearst, that's just hysteria. Well, uh, flash forward to three or four years ago, a witness has come forward. Frank, uh, my colleague in this, Frank Warren, uh, had turned up a witness, a man who is probably older than I am. There are a few, not too many. Uh, <laughs> David <laughs> likes to say I'm as old as the hills, so you're saying to yeah, me well, you're older than the hills. I'm older than the, yeah, oh. I'm older than, I'm older, older than the humps in the ground. But anyway. Well, Brad Steiger, uh, by the way, who was our guest on the previous episode of the Paracast. Oh, no. He suggested yeah. that he's known me since the day of the dinosaurs. Yeah, right. Well, I always used to tell my students I've been a, I've been around since the ice caps were glinting, up, you know, oh. it, as they retreated. You know. Oh so, boy, that's one of anyway. I love though. I love yeah. those ice caps. I just really Indeed. adore them. Yes. yes. Uh, but Frank has has come up with a witness, a fascinating witness, who claims to have seen an aircraft. On the ground, an American aircraft, you could see the markings, an American aircraft on the ground at, on Vermont Avenue at about four in the, four in the morning. He didn't see the pilot, but the plane was intact and it looked like it had made a forced landing. A few people had gathered. A flatbed truck, a military flatbed truck rolled up very quickly. They threw a tarp over the plane and hauled it off. And this guy is very coherent. He is, the, the, this I think is a very, I would rate this as a very solid observation. And especially in light of the, the new, the, the, the newspaper story that a, that an enemy plane was shot down on Vermont Avenue and that's five or four hours later. So I think the evidence is very clear that at least one of the planes we saw was forced down. Now, a fellow I ran into on a high school, my high school alumni news group, believe it or not, we have one, Redondo High School. I don't know, this came up, and I told the story online, you know, back and forth. It's a it's classic little news group. And this guy, who I don't remember, a guy named John Bach, 
who was, uh, I think, a little ahead of me in high school, lived before he went. He hadn't. His family hadn't moved to Redondo Beach at that point, and were living in Long Beach. And he says, "Oh, he wrote it. Oh, I saw this thing, but it looked like an airplane, and it was heading northwest." All right. And so I remember, like, and I wrote back. I said, "You did see an airplane, yeah, and it was almost certainly yeah. one of ours, and heading." In the direction of what could easily have been South Vermont Avenue from Long Beach, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so we have a witness who sees an American plane, sees a plane. He thought it was the the object, but it certainly wasn't. He sees a plane, clearly an airplane. He saw the wings and so on. He's a he's a kid. We're all kids. You're seeing this. Uh, that's heading northwest. And we got I got John to give me as close as possible a trajectory from the street he lived on in Long Beach, and we plotted it. And in other words, he could have seen the plane that came down on Vermont Avenue a few minutes before. So mm-hmm. we have that. Then there is another less uh, credible but interesting account of another plane that went down on a street somewhere in Hollywood at about the same time. Again, hauled off, but this time the witness swears he saw Japanese markings. Well, I've just recently researched that. In February of 1943, we, the American uh, insignia on all of our combat aircraft were still a round circle with a star and a red circle in in a a very visible vivid red circle inside it that changed because it looked very much like the hinamaru like what the pilots called the meatball on the zero right the round the, the japanese still on the japanese flag but that change didn't happen until may of 40 of 42 so this guy probably saw the red circle before they threw the tarp over it and said, uh-huh, it's a Jap plane, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, so basically, officially, they're saying it was a Japanese plane that... Nobody says it's a... Okay. No, 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 no. Oh, no, no, please. This, the guy that saw uh, the per- what I'm talking about... The guy who... Okay, the guy who saw, saw it assumed a, that. Okay. Saw it on uh, in Hollywood. The guy that saw the Vermont Avenue crash was clear that it was an American plane. Okay, it wasn't, okay. He wasn't, there's no, but Scott, so, here's the thing, though. Let's cut right okay. to this. Are we assuming these sure. planes came down because they received some of the anti-aircraft fire, or is it that perhaps this UFO put the planes down? If I had to make a guess, I would go for the latter. Huh. Uh, in other words, that fried their navigation system, uh, their what primitive avionics at that point, the, the Vermont Avenue downed plane that seems to be pretty... We have there's some you know isometrics isometrics here. Different. Uh, this one, according to the witness who saw it hauled off, it was intact. In other words, the, somehow the guy had to make a forced landing on Vermont Avenue. But he got it down in one piece. He got it down in one piece, so it wasn't shot down. And my knowing what has happened, what in subsequent years, what you know, looking at the history of the UFO literature, uh, it does sound kind of familiar, right? A plane approaches and it's forced down, right? right? And uh, again, the the less credible witness in Hollywood also claims that it was intact. So these weren't crashes. These were crash landings, forced downs. 
right? Scott, what about the, the neighbors that lived around the house at the time? I mean, I assume you guys weren't the only people out watching oh, no. this, right? Oh, oh, oh. Uh, the estimate is about a million people actually saw it in Southern California that night. A million people? Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it has to rank, if it is as I, if it was, as I strongly suspect, it's right up there with Mexico City and Phoenix and, you know, in terms of mass sightings. Yeah, it has to be. Uh, I mean, L.A. wasn't anywhere near as big as it is today, but apparently the one estimate is that at least a million people were aware of it. There were a few heart attacks. Uh, there were a couple of automobile accidents. And a few people were uh, injured by falling shrapnel from the uh, anti-aircraft fire. Uh, right. As far as I know, no... There are only about three or four fatalities that could be directly related to it. The guy, by the way, that saw the plane, what he thought was the object, going northwest from Long Beach, also claims that a piece of shrapnel crashed through the roof of his their neighbor's garage. Bang, and made a hole. He saw that happen. So the, this plane, well, the, the, the firing wasn't, was still going on at that point. Now, remember, what's interesting is that the object was now over Long Beach heading toward Orange County, heading out toward, you know. Okay, can I, may I pick up with something? I I said earlier that uh, it seemed to be blithely ignoring the the mass fire, 1400. However, however, and here we move into the realm of much less credible but interesting uh, rumor. There are some store accounts that claim that the object crashed, the object itself either crashed in the Pacific off northern, off, say, Oceanside, off northern San Diego County, or crash-landed on San Clemente Island, which was, of course, then and until recently a military reserve where they practiced bombardments and Marines practiced beach landings and so on. It's the southernmost of the Channel Islands, and that it was recovered. Here's so the we problem may- with that, Scott. Not, but what? The, something, something there doesn't really jive up, though, mm-hmm. because if you have this thing taking 1,400 rounds that mm-hmm. you saw it take, and this didn't seem to put a huge dent in it. Why all of a sudden well, did it crash what land? What I think, and let there now, there's another, well, there's more. All right. There's another witness who was a little younger than I was. He was five years, he claims to have been about five years old, that lived on Irena Street in Redondo Beach. And he claims, I've been in touch with him online. I can't get a name. We can't run him down. He has a, uh, I can't get, uh, Frank and I are trying to get a hold of him. Frank is a little skeptical of this, but it's interesting. He claims to have seen it pass almost directly over his house at a very low altitude, as if almost they thought, he and his family thought it was come. This is a bit inland. In inland in Redondo, I, I wish I was visual and we had a map I could show you. And this guy, Mr. X, I don't know his name, claims that the, he saw it practically within a hundred feet of his house, and that it looked very was huge, and it had a square, squarish stern. Let's say the, the back side of it as it. And, in fact, he claims that his father and several friends jumped in a pickup truck because they thought it was going to land at Lomita Airstrip. 
there was then, I don't know if there still is, an airstrip in the town of Lomita, which is sort of on, it was heading in that direction. Well, it didn't. And it picked up altitude and went over the mountain, went over uh, Palos Verdes Hills and was seen over San Pedro and Long Beach, etc. Now, my this is totally a totally a speculation, but somewhere along the line, one or more of that 1400 might have caused some damage that did screw up its navigation system. Oh, so we're attacking the UFOs too. Hey, listeners, did you know that Fate is the oldest and best-known publication on the paranormal? Well, since 1948, Fate has provided their readers with fascinating in-depth articles on subjects like psychics and spiritualists, ghosts and hauntings, UFOs and aliens, as well as readers' true personal mystical experiences. For under $20, you can keep up with all the latest information. To subscribe, call now at one 800 728 2730 or visit Fate's website at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. So what are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. Scott Littleton joining us on the PowerCast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney, and he is an anthropologist, but he's also involved in so many different things, and we're actually going to focus on more than just the Battle of Los Angeles. Right now, we're kind of in the middle of it, and you're speculating here, Scott, that one of the rounds might have affected the navigation equipment yes. aboard this craft. Or sure. Have wounded it in some fashion. Sure. Now, I say this because, as you probably know, there, uh, one, there is a school of thought among ufologists that uh, the Roswell crash was the result of a shootdown. Uh, have you heard that one? That we shot it, literally shot it down. There are some, uh, there are some accounts of cases where in the late 40s and early 50s, discs were in fact shot down by American planes, by American jets. We had jets that we didn't when this happened. So it's not impossible that either one of the one of our planes, or more probably the anti-aircraft. You see, it's interesting that in subsequent confrontations between pilots, uh, military pilots and UFOs post-World War II, nobody was firing anti-aircraft rounds at them. The only time I can think of where anti-aircraft rounds played a part was in the Battle of Los Angeles. So my hunch is that possibly one of the, a, a shell fragment of one of the explosions right next, somehow penetrated its force field. Now, all of this is very, the whole, the thing May have disappeared and gone back to the mothership for all I know, but we we do have these unsubstantiated rumors about it being recovered by the Navy. All right. Well, you know, maybe that's something we shouldn't dwell too heavily on because yeah, unless I'm there's something the to, to nail it down. Well, well there is an interesting sure. there's there's an interesting corollary to this if this uh, theory and it's. The, very, very shaky theory is correct, it would mean that they did recover the thing, that they 
it would explain how quickly they got to Roswell. They knew, in other words, already knew what was going. In other words, they said, "Oh, here we go." You see what I'm hmm. saying? It that's only that's five years later. So yeah. it does. That, I mean, this, this is speculative. I, right. I, Actually, I, it's almost a little too speculative. Well, uh, what, I think what we're more concerned about right now is yeah, sure. your your recollections, for example, of what happened with the media coverage of this. Now you have this happening mm-hmm. with uh, in a time when people are already tense. Mm-hmm. Um, and you have this thing going on at 3 o'clock in the morning. A lot of people see it. What was the media coverage like, Scott? What was the radio coverage of this the next day? Uh, strange event over Los Angeles. Uh, uh, Los Angeles. Uh, was there a Japanese plane or Jap plane? We used that uh, over L.A. and a lot of the one. Uh, and there was a story in the L.A. Times, and that's kind of it. It just sort of faded. Well, it's just one of those things. We used to. We used to say. I remember people. We talked about it. My parents used to say, "Oh, we'll find out about what this was." when the war is over. Well, the war ended and we didn't find out. It just kind of faded very quickly. Yeah, it faded. Mm. People remembered it, but I mean, in terms it didn't set off a media frenzy. There were stories in the L.A. Times. There was a story in the New York Times. It was mentioned in radio news. And then that's that. And on to there was so much else going on in the world. Then on to... What was yet, going on in Corregidor? I mean, in Bataan. Right, right. But but that photograph, yeah. though, mm-hmm. that yep. Dr. Maccabee looked at, that photograph mm-hmm. showed up in the papers then, right? That's I mean, right. That, right. So, published in the L.A. Times in the morning of the 26th. Mm-hmm. So you have that photograph coming out, and you don't have a strong public response to it? That no. That's almost odd in and of itself. It is, but it, you don't. No, there was. I remember now, I'm thinking of from an eight-year-old perspective, but there was no memory. Uh-huh. I have no memory of any uh, people. I mean, it was a big deal in the sense that kids the next day all talked about it. We picked up shrapnel on the beach, I remember, and turned it into the scrap drive. And, and it was a topic of conversation. It, there were stories in the local newspaper that was this mainly on the next day. And uh, I met, it was, I think, on radio news. But that's it. It didn't know. The photograph didn't set off. Oh, huh. Well, it's a Jap plane, you know, a Jap observation plane. That was this, this, the consensus that it had to have been a Japanese plane. But nobody asked the question, why couldn't we shoot it down? And that looks, it was a weird looking airplane, but still. See, so a lot of the witnesses, the witnesses who talk about it going over the uh, Baldwin Hill about the time point just before the photograph, which all of this came out much, much years and years, decades later. Okay, did they take notes at the time? Is this something they just remembered? or No, what? just memory. Okay. Just memory. What I'm yeah. thinking here is let's focus, and I want to move on to other subjects here, oh, David, sure, and I, sure. but let's focus on the strangeness aspect of it because we want to say, okay, this is something that may be extraterrestrial, whatever, but not something that was a test aircraft ours or the Germans or something like that. Now, the thing that I'd like to focus on in this particular first half of the show, we have only a few minutes left in the first half of the show, is what about the sighting makes it seem strange and maybe not a test aircraft because we know the Germans were playing around with with rockets and stuff and unusual kinds of aircraft. We don't know what the Japanese were doing. Now, did you see it make any particular maneuvers that would lead you to believe this was something that was really strange, unusual, or something like that? No, I think I know what 
what you're getting at. You no, know, I didn't see it do any kind of right angle turns or anything that later has been associated with it. It simply followed a trajectory, uh, again, veering off, veering inland south of us. It did not do any kind. It wasn't trying to avoid anything uh, or avoid the explosions. It was just moving along. As I said, blithely is the best way I could put it, uh, ignoring uh, what was being thrown at it. The uh, In terms of strangeness, again, uh, we didn't think in those terms. People were not saying, oh, oh, was this an, uh, an, a, an extraterrestrial? That was the last thing at that point anybody assumed. I mean, it, it was strange, but not the kind of high strangeness that that people have, have thought about in recent well, years. Well, there, there was none of yeah. the cultural conditioning that, no, that's that right. we have today. No, I mean, no. didn't... I, I, I'm going to go on a limb here, but I'm going to guess that in 1942 there had not been any kind of motion picture made about this. I think those came later in the in the 40s and early 50s. Those didn't really happen in 1942. Am I wrong? We had the only thing I can think of in terms of the type of sci-fi would be Flash Gordon and Buck Rogers. Yeah, that's yeah. about it. And or John Carter on Mars and things like that. There was. Well, yeah, now, uh, to be fair, Charles Fort was talking about this kind of stuff in 1922, but, uh, I mean, how many people read Charles Fort? I mean, not very many. Not, no, not in those years, and we're not talking yeah. about the, the no, late... No, that's what I'm saying. There were some people who, who were thinking along this line, but they were voices crying in a very... Okay, but I think building. where I'm trying to get here is mm -hmm. what sure. leads you to believe this wasn't a conventional mm -hmm. object? And we have to look at, like I said, what were the Germans working on, you know? Okay, okay. First of all, I don't see how the Germans could have gotten it there. The Germans were working on jets, on rockets, obviously, uh, but not, well, in 19, early 1942, uh, let's look at it a little more closely, the German rocket program was still, if not in its infancy, in its adolescence. Uh, they were a couple of years from perfecting the V-2 and uh and or the v1 uh the v2s that uh, in 19 late in 44 and 45 rained down on london and which became the basis of all subsequent uh, rocket programs with thanks to operation paperclip and all of that no i so even if the germans had gotten some kind of a rocket thing over there it would it, it, it certainly couldn't have been 300 feet long okay what about something like you know, some kind you know, of I'm sorry? some kind of blimp could it have been a blimp mm -hmm. that's been suggested again there's the the errant barrage balloon theory because these are much bigger than than oh the people by the way weather balloons have been brought in here too that's the that's the all-purpose uh, explanation but no uh, a, a barrage balloon would have been totally destroyed by the uh, wouldn't have gotten much past Santa Monica right and besides the route taken in terms of it barrage balloons don't make right-angle turns and uh, they're not intelligently driven as far as I know well, I'm thinking in terms of a blimp you know like a Hindenburg or something like that well uh, yeah but I think the the barrage would have disintegrated such an object that's yeah. the you thing that certainly has concern but, yes yeah, I mean, uh, the odds of it being a blimp, a Japanese blimp, as far as we know, the Japanese didn't have anything like this. 
And I might add, after the war, we, I do know this, that a search, an exhaustive search of Japanese military records has turned up no evidence that the Japanese, any Japanese air, aircraft ever penetrated uh, North America. Okay, what about the Germans? Some balloons did up in, uh, they sent the sure. balloons up in uh, Oregon and so on with uh, drifting. But that, that's not an issue here. What about okay. the Germans? Anything in what we might know about the Germans? Nope. Okay. The Germans, as far as I know, there is no. I, I, I don't know whether anybody has searched, the, or even bothered to search the German records. Did you send anything over Los Angeles? How would they get it here? Submarine? <laughs> you couldn't launch that off a submarine. No. Uh, but as far as I know, there is no evidence that any German object got over Southern California. And though the, the more uh, obvious culprit would be Jap Japan, the Japanese records have yielded no, no evidence whatsoever. No, mm -hmm. the Japanese are absolutely adamant that it was not one of ours. And what's also very interesting about this, Scott, is that it appears that here we are in 1942, and already there seems to be some policy of government cover-up in terms of yeah. the government stating we didn't have planes up, that didn't happen. Look over here at the blinking shining light. We think about the modern government cover-up of this material, but for some odd reason, here it is 1942, and the government releases what you you personally know to be an untrue statement, that there were no planes up in the air around it, which was obviously not correct. And they, That's a and very strange fact. That is still the official position even today, mm. as far as I know, last I, last I heard. Well, this leads me to a, an assumption, to a speculation again, uh -huh. that there had been, as you know, there is some evidence of earlier crash recovery. Cape Girardeau, Missouri, uh, in 1941, a year earlier. I'm, are you familiar with that? I've, I've read about that, yes, yes. Okay, assuming that that happened and that they did get their hands on something and figured out more or less what it was, this would mean that at the highest circles, some people said, uh-oh, here's another one. Mm -hmm. That's not in, and what we've got to put the lid on. So it's not impossible that an earlier, uh, the, the one that comes to mind is Cape, I don't know, they say Girardeau or Gira, I don't know how it's pronounced. Girardeau in French, but Missouri might be different. That, uh, about a year earlier, early in the spring of 41, I think, or was it the summer, I can't remember the exact date, that there is a, some fairly good evidence that a, um, what we would today call a UFO, not an extraterrestrial, call it ET, uh, right. crashed there and was retrieved. Okay, I'll tell you what, we're just about That's done with this first hour of okay. the PowerCast. We'll resume this on the other side. We're talking to Scott Littleton. And we focused our first hour pretty much on the Battle of Los Angeles UFO case from February 25th, 1942. More of the PowerCast on the other side of the hour. Ray Perkins, a reclusive veteran burned out from the Gulf War, lives tortured by relentless, perplexing nightmares. Nightmares of a horrific battle in deep space and of a mysterious woman suffering in agony for her devastated world. A woman not yet born, calling across centuries to him. Then, a coincidence leads him to his destiny, his chance to alter the universe. Attack! Attack! Of the Rockwell. The former fiction editor for Star Wars and Indiana Jones, Robert Simpson, writes 
The soul of the novel Attack of the Rockoids lies in its heart and passion for building a convincing tale of a love that spans the galaxy. A thrilling story. Attack of the Rockoids is available now. Read a sample chapter and get a special discount off of the cover price at our website, rockoids.com. That's R-O-C-K-O-I-D-S dot com. Attack of the Rockoids. A novel in the grand science fiction tradition. to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners and gene and data. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com. We're back with part two of the PowerCast. We're talking to Scott Littleton. He is a professor of anthropology emeritus from Occidental College in Los Angeles. And we don't call him a full-fledged ufologist, as he says, but he is definitely interested in UFOs. And we were talking pretty much about the Battle of Los Angeles, an interesting UFO sighting where some sort of craft came under anti-aircraft fire back on February 25th, 1942. David, let's pick up from there. Well, I think that one of the things we have to do, Gene, is qualify that Scott is uh, not only an anthropologist, but also a fairly prolific author who's written a, a fairly vast range of books on a variety of topics that tie into this in a very fascinating way. Now, Scott, um, in doing some research about you in preparation for the show, uh, it looks like you've had a lifelong, looks like a lifelong interest in other cultures. And I'm going to take us off the thread that we've covered so far, uh, and let's look at the history of not just UFOs throughout time in different cultures, but also we like talking about a lot of different paranormal topics on the Paracast. And one of the things that you're an expert in is in Japanese culture and the Shinto religion. One thing we don't talk about much in the States is how paranormal uh, realities such as reported hauntings or UFOs, how these things are necessarily reflected in other cultures. We've talked about to some extent on the Paracast in terms of uh, the reality of UFOs and the paranormal in South America, but Japan is uh, fairly off-limits to this from the American point of view. In, in the time you've spent over there, What's your take on, for example, let's start with, if you have any information or knowledge about the Japanese UFO experience? Is oh, there such I, a- I do. I do. Uh, uh, they, the Japanese beliefs have a fascination with the subject uh, that I don't think is appreciated here. The Japanese word for alien is uchujin, which means universe person. Uchujin. Jin is hmm. So... Uh, the Japanese are very much interested. I remember as far back as, oh, the early 80s, 1980, I was over there as a Fulbrighter in 1980-81 and mm-hmm. uh, teaching at a university in Tokyo. And on Japanese television, uh, once a month, one of the cha- had a regularly a UFO roundup worldwide, UFO roundup. My thought in those days was that their media was doing more than ours at that point in the early 80s. And uh, I, that has continued. Uh, a very good friend of mine, uh, 
that I've gotten that I want to like we in, in anthropology we use the term informant. I mean somebody who uh, has informant in this case means someone who who you are gathering cultural information from uh, is fascinated with UFOs. He's read Adamski, you know, and translated into Japanese. And there are, uh, admittedly, he's got a ways to go. But nevertheless, I found a lot of interest. There was a group, and there are several Japanese groups. There was, and again, I have been out of touch with Japanese ufology really since the mid. Nineties. Uh, last time I spent an extended time in Japan was in 1994. Again, as a Fulbrighter researching a Shinto ceremony, a Shinto uh, well festival in the neighborhood that I'm. I've been living. I've been going back and forth to the same Tokyo neighborhood since the 1976. But hmm. still, there was a lot of of interest in this phenomenon, and I remember watching one of the most interesting hypno-regressions on Japanese television of a kid named Takahashi, and this would have been in 1979, New Year's 1979. Uh, he was abducted on the island of Shikoku near, uh, on what's a, it's the most rural of the Japanese islands, uh, and he was living on the edge of uh, one of the towns, and uh, he was spending New Year's. New Year's is a very important date for the Japanese. It's a very, it's a very solemn festival, solemn thing. And he was spending New Year's with his mother, a kid about 23 or 24 at the time. And he was the class, the classic abduction. And so he was regressed hypnotically, and they filmed it. And I know enough Japanese to get the sense of what they were talking about and his descriptions of the Uchujin match their grays. I mean, they match. This kid was a classic. It's a classic abduction story, abduction case. And there are a lot of others. Uh, periodically, uh, UFOs would be seen sometimes right over Tokyo. And you would get a lot of, quite a few multiple sightings. So there's a lot of interest in the phenomenon. In fact, I think in some respects, the Japanese are more open to this than we are. That's my feeling. To the possibility that creatures from another solar system or dimension or wherever are uh, the future or whatever are visiting us. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, now but let's fine. connect that. But the, I, I, I think there's something interesting there because if if one looks at the Shinto religion, we find that you have a real strong core belief in things like uh, the afterlife. Let me back off on that. Okay. Uh, the Shinto is. Okay, uh, many Japanese uh, that I I know and worked with put it this way: I live in Shinto, but I die a Buddhist. Which okay. means that Shinto in Japan is the this world religion. Yes, there are supernatural beings, but there's a very really weakly developed uh, afterlife concept. The ancestors are venerated, but they after a couple of years, several years, the, the, the soul just kind of fades into the family history. There is not an emphasis on the afterworld. For example, 90, 99% of, well, I, I'm, I'm 
percentage. I remember that. That's not, I wouldn't swear to that in court, but right. overwhelmingly, the cemeteries in Japan are attached to Buddhist temples. Uh, Buddhism, of course, is after very, they, well, transmigration of soul and so on. I mean, it, it does involve uh, what happens after death. Uh, right. And whereas in Sh- there are only two Shinto cemeteries in the Tokyo area, and I didn't wasn't aware of them until this, my second long trip there. One of them is where the imperial the emperors are buried. Uh, when the late when Hirohito died some years ago, 21 or 15, whatever it is, years ago, uh, the te- the funeral was televised and so on. It was a totally Shinto thing. There was no Bud- there was not a Buddhist element in it. And so the whole cult surrounding the emperor, yes, that's Shinto. But it's not, and there's this veneration of ancestors. Every house has a has a, a kamidama, kamidana, a, a god shelf, kami's god, where the names of the ant family ancestors are put into a, like a little miniature shrine. But all of this is very generalized. Uh, there is no sense of reward or punishment. Shinto, the people go to Shinto shrines to get healthy, to succeed on tests in school, and to get married. They may not be married in the shrine, but they will be more apt to be married in a hotel, but by a Shinto priest. Mm-hmm. So if 99% of Japanese funerals are conducted according to Buddhist rites, an equal percentage of Japanese marriages are Shinto. In other words, Shinto is the life religion. Shinto is reproduction. It's fertility. There are phallic cults in Shinto, uh, where the central object is a phallus. And it, it's the life religion as opposed to the death religion. So when you say a strong emphasis on the after afterlife, I, I really have to qualify that. Okay, let me, I'll, I'll, I'll reframe that. Here I'm request. being a, an academic here. I understand that. And there's <laughs> cer- that's certainly appropriate. Well, I'll, I'll rephrase it then. Yeah, yeah. We have a culture that in its duality of expression in, in religious terms does indeed have uh, clearly mechanisms that deal with things like the afterlife and mm-hmm. spirits, mm-hmm. for example, unlike, let's say, uh, the typical uh, Judeo-Christian uh, set of parameters that maybe are a little less open to this. Oh, I think you're right there. Japanese folk, the folk beliefs involve, of course, the notion of ghost. Mm-hmm. Ghosts are very important in Japan. Obake are, are very, uh, very important. Spirit possession is very important. Uh, for example, the worst thing that can happen to you is to be possessed by the spirit of a fox. Uh, that's awful. You don't want to be. And yet, in some, by the same token, the fox is the guardian of one of the most important uh, Shinto deities, Inari. So it's, uh, there, there's this notion in Shinto. Shinto is basically animistic. Everything that exists, every rock, every mountain, every individual has, in a sense, a soul. Has uh, is animated has a is has a kami attached. The, mm-hmm. the number of souls, the number of kami is infinite. And uh, in other words, these are it's the essence of of, of something that exists. And this notion uh, is sort of part of the background noise of Japanese culture. So yes, the idea that one could be possessed by a spirit or that. 
there is a, uh, a spirit that animates a mountain or, 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 or whatever is taken for granted in a way in Japan. Right. I mean, the Japanese tend to be very uh, on uh, polls, on uh, opinion polls. You, the Japanese sometimes come out the least religious culture in the world. But that's misleading. But uh, he say, no, I don't really believe in all of this. But then why are you standing there with your hands clapped? Oh, well, you know, <laughs> the, there's a sort of a paradox here. But so I said, I, they're more open. Yes, I would agree. They're more open to the kind of thing that to 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 the paranormal and well, we are. Yeah. Where I'm kind of taking us here is that, given the fact that you're an anthropologist, and I know that you've done some research connecting things like the UFO experience and other paranormal experiences to an anthropological potential source that you know you, that we've got maybe something that is entwined in our mental processes in a way that we're less likely to consider is it have you seen any any um, evidence to suggest that in Japanese culture there is a more predominant number of paranormal experiences if we assume that the human mind might have some role in creating psychological projections which are interpreted as paranormal events. Oh, okay. That's a, uh, you've asked a real complicated uh, question here because it yeah. goes beyond Japan. What, right. what you're implying is some kind of hard wiring in the human mind, right? Exactly. And I'm, I'm skeptical of that. I don't think, uh, okay, let me put it this way. I take a much more, shall we say, nuts and bolts approach to all of this. Okay. Uh, if I can sum up what I, my own take on, on let's say, the, on the quote, the phenomenon, mm -hmm. uh, I've coined a term that I don't know whether you've run into if you've looked over my, my stuff. I've coined a term I call the alien Raj. Absolutely, yes. Uh, and uh, I've, you know, I'm in print with it in a couple of places. I did an, uh, an article for UFO magazine in which it's mentioned in, in a novel that came out a few years ago and is, will be reprinted in a revised and much better edition this spring by Red Pill. But nevertheless, I think, I say I think, I don't believe, I, I don't like to use the, the number, the whole argument about the whole business on that, uh, I mean, that Frank Warren, I mean, my friend Frank was very concerned about on the recent Larry King show, that you guys must have seen it. Oh, yeah, absolutely. The yeah, use of where, her belief. Where this whole belief business, well, yeah, I'm not yeah. a true believer because as far as religion is concerned, I'll be very honest with you, I'm an atheist. I don't believe in any kind of supernatural beings. By the same token, I do think the paranormal exists, and, but I don't think it's supernatural. I think it's it uh, involves aspects of physics and uh, particularly uh, the nature of consciousness, which I, I agree with Jack Sarfati and uh, uh, I'll put off and others that it's the, the so-called post-quantum physicists that, uh, to the best I understand them, that consciousness is non-localized, that consciousness embeds in objects. I think that consciousness is universal. I think kind of the roots of consciousness emerged with the Big Bang. 
And uh, I think that consciousness thus can migrate from one host to another, which accounts for reincarnation. I don't think you need any religious or supernatural explanations to a, to possibly all of this is predicated because in other words we don't have the physics of this I can't give you the equation you're saying basically it's part of our natural law it's not something natural, supernatural it's a natural phenomena that oh. consciousness of one sort or another the more uh, a very simple form of consciousness is probably in a rock I'll tell you what uh, before we go into the consciousness yeah. of a rock all right <laughs> <laughs> which certainly it. leads to a lot of other possibilities yes it does on the rocks <laughs> We have William Burns, the publisher of UFO Magazine, on the line. William, can you give us an offer for our readers about getting the magazine? Yes, I sure can. Here's an offer for your listener. We have a special five-issue introductory offer for first-time subscribers, 1995 for your first five issues. Not available anywhere else, but on the Paracast. So, Bill, how do they place the order? People can place orders by going to www.ufomag.com. They can also place orders over the phone at 1-888-UFO-MAGA, or they can write to us at Post Office Box 11013, Marina Del Rey, California, 90295. Bill, give us that contact information again. It is UFO Magazine, Post Office Box 11013, Marina Del Rey, California, 90295. Or they can go directly to www.ufomag.com. And they can also call 1-888-UFO-MAGA, and they can subscribe right over the phone with a credit card. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast. On the PowerCast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney, we have Scott Littleton, Professor of Anthropology Emeritus from Occidental College, Los Angeles. And we are talking about something that's beyond the Battle of Los Angeles and UFOs, but going into Japanese culture and also looking at the paranormal. David. Scott, there's an article I was reading online that you wrote, Divine Rebels, Alien Dissidents, where you draw some really interesting comparisons and maybe even tracing three different characters in our in our sociological history, so to speak. You, you, you tie them together in an interesting way, those three characters being Lucifer, Prometheus, and Quetzalcoatl. Let's talk about that a little bit. Could you give us the, the sort of the foundation? Could it ties back into what you just brought up a moment ago, the alien Raj? Could you lay out for us? Yeah, lay out for us the sort of the foundation of what you talk about in this article, please. Well, okay. First of all, you, uh, I mentioned the, earlier the term, and it, it is mentioned. It is in that article. The term, the alien Raj. 
That is, of course, ringing the changes on the old British Raj in India, the, the colonial establishment. What that implies, I think, is that this planet is the speculation. I can't prove any of this, obviously. I wish I right. could. That this, my hunch, my strong, my educated guess, is that Charles Fort was right that we have been fought over and that we are property, that this planet has been a what amounts to a, I call it a clandestine colony of at least one, if not more, uh, there may, it may be even divided up a little bit, uh, extraterrestrial, far more sophisticated, technologically advanced sentient beings from elsewhere in probably fairly nearby space. I, I, I don't think they probably come from the other side of the universe. I think they probably come from within, uh, this is just dead reckoning, uh, well, sure. maybe three or four hundred light years uh, at best, but nevertheless, and probably much closer, but nevertheless, from a, as a result of a parallel evolution on a uh, G-class, uh, a, a planet circling a G-class, class star at about the same distance as Earth. Uh, we now are beginning to speculate that there are Earth, uh, we now are getting evidence that there are smaller planets circling. And when I first thought of this, nobody, everybody, oh, there's no more, you know, how do we know there are another planet? But we, now we know that, that almost every star has planets, right? Absolutely. And, uh, so, okay, so, now, to, to be sure, nobody has found a nice blue Shining jewel in the star that we're in the sky that we're in this in circling a, a planet that would. We, be we've only been looking very very recently, oh, so we have true. a long way to go. Oh, indeed. Are uh, you saying a long way to go? A long way to go. But so my hunch is that we were discovered by these folks. Uh, if I had to pin it down, I'd say about twelve or thirteen thousand years ago. I think they they arrived just at the end, toward the end of the last ice age. Now, I know that there is a school of ufologists that like to think that they bioengineered us. As an anthropologist, that is not an efficient explanation. We evolved independently, I'm sure of that. Now, that doesn't mean they haven't tweaked some of the that they don't have subjects that they tweak. And one of the most fascinating aspects, by the way, of the abduction phenomena is the fact that it runs in lineages. Mm -hmm. And as an anthropologist, to me, that's fascinating because they are they have certain subject human lineages that that, that they not only that but they make sure that they, uh, they 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 put them together to make sure that they read Hopkins, read any of read Jacobs. All of this uh, reinforces the notion that they came here probably because they were fascinated with us because it was clear that the planet was about to undergo a major environmental change, global warming, as it were. The ice caps were already probably beginning to retreat. And I think they said, staying around, said, what, 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 what's going to, what are these creatures going to do? What's going to, what, what's going to happen to them? Are, are they going to begin to become civilized or what? And in a way, I think they saw in us their own remote ancestry. Now, I don't know anybody who has suggested this, but but that, in other words, they saw playing out something that had happened on their own star, their own home planet or planets, uh, say 50, 100,000, you know, dead reckoning, 
who knows, right? Say, yeah. 25,000, 50,000 years earlier, however, however long. And that this is what intrigued them initially. And so I use the term alien Raj in the same sense of the British Raj in India, that they, in other words, have been in a funny way kind of managing the affairs of this planet. But, 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 unlike the British Raj with their Durbars and, and, and New Delhi and whatnot, the alien Raj is much more clandestine, obviously, and... It is also, I think, operates for the most part, not totally by any means, but for the most part, in terms of what uh, Gene Roddenberry called the prime directive. I think that their policy, other things being equal, is don't interfere. Stay on observe, but don't interfere. So, uh, did human beings build the pyramids and Stonehenge? Yes. Uh, We can account for that efficiently. The arguments, people like Graham Hancock and so on, I think they're they're underestimating human creativity. You know what, I think because we've done that kind of discussion in a previous episode of the Paracast where we did look at the creation of the pyramids of Egypt, so maybe I'd like you to focus on that for a few minutes just to say, okay, this is why... It's not something that was done by them or the help of them. Hi, this is Timothy Green Beckley, otherwise known as Mr. UFO, reporting live for the Conspiracy Journal. And we have a special offer to the listeners of the Paracast. Want to receive our publications for free? Conspiracy Journal and Bizarre Bizarre sent to you via snail mail. And all you have to do is email me at MrUFO at WebTV.net. That's MRUFO at WebTV.net. And we'll send you two of the most exciting publications. But we do need your actual address because these are physical publications. And you'll enjoy all the latest articles by some of the leading researchers in the field, as well as up-to-date information on the latest book and videos and it's all for free or drop us a line mr ufo at webtv.net hey there listeners have you ever thought about hosting your website you know where you can actually host your blog or your web page well i'll tell you where to go host i can host i can and as a matter of fact they provide all our hosting too for this site and guess what their price starts at only seven dollars a month how could you go wrong It's reliability, and speed speaks for itself. And that's why we're able to provide you with this radio show that you're listening to right now. It's Host I Can. Give them a try. You'll be glad you did. To learn more about Host I Can, go to this website, techbroadcasting.com. That's techbroadcasting.com slash host. Techbroadcasting.com slash host. And you'll learn more about Host I Can. The Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. On the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney, 
We're talking to Scott Littleton. We focused originally on the Battle of Los Angeles in 1942. Now we're talking about interventions, visitations by aliens in ancient times, ancient astronauts, so to speak. Okay, so you're saying that the pyramids of Egypt, for example, were built by human beings. Did they have any help or not? Possibly some. Here and there, uh, somebody may have nudged a rock a little bit, but essentially, I think they were, they probably monitored it closely and probably abducted and uh, worked with with the builders, possibly even the pharaoh. Uh, but the, I don't think that they had that they directly were involved with it. So there I get off that bandwagon. I think they watched it, but I don't think they did it. But, were they identified as gods, though, in some fashion? Oh, yes. sure. oh of course. Right. Of course. I think most human religion in one way or another reflects their presence. Uh, now, let me quickly uh, add a caveat. Had they not showed up, I think we would still have religion. I think we would still be trying to make sense out of uh, things that are otherwise inexplicable by personalizing them, by projecting consciousnesses into the sun and the moon and so on. So I don't think they are the reason we have religion. I think we probably already had shamanic belief systems going before they got here. What I do think they have done is colored, have account for a lot of consistencies when sky gods and so on. In other words, uh, human beings probably had some form of, of transcendent belief system going back, oh, probably maybe even into the Neanderthals, but probably, in fact, I think they're a little brighter than most people seem uh, to think. But nevertheless, these guys, the, the creatures, the, the aliens, have colored our belief and our folklore from the ubiquitous little people. And here Jacques Vallée did a marvelous, made a marvelous contribution. I'm sure you're familiar with the passport to Magonia. And, or am I making an assumption here? that Would your readers be familiar with that? Yeah, yeah, well, yeah I think some would be, some wouldn't. Why don't, we, well, why don't you just summarize it real quickly? Okay, Jacques Vallée is a very well-known, very prominent ufologist. Right. I don't agree with some of the stuff that in recent years that he's done, but I do think that in suggesting, oh, back in the 70s, in suggesting that the little people of folklore from elves, trolls, fairies, jinn, the Hawaiian menahune, uh, dwarves, etc., that turn up in almost or in every traditional belief system, including the Maya, for example. The Japanese have them. That the little, these little people who are tricksters, typically, they can help you sort of quixotically. They can capriciously have, you know, the story of the, the fairies that bring in the, that help the shoemaker, right, and make the shoes and so on. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But they can also be nasty and they can also abduct you to fairyland. They can all that, and what happens when you go to fairyland? You come back and you think you've been gone for a week and it's 20 years, right? So they also associated with the phenomenon of missing time. And so I think that that's one reflection of the alien presence, a more up-close and personal one, because I, I, I suspect that in pre-modern times, going back probably, yeah, I don't know how, at what point uh, they withdrew. But I think they probably maintained research stations 
fairly more commonly on the surface when we were simpler. And the whole notion of fairy land and so on, fairy lands, I think is predicated on the presence of bases, alien bases. As we became more sophisticated, I think they pulled back. In other words, they're always trying to stay out of the way as society, as urbanism developed, as, well, empires and so on. I think they pulled That doesn't mean they still didn't intrude in the sense of by abducting. I think the, they have been studying this intensively, studying human lineages, probably for thou, for several millennia. For, and they, why is an interesting question. I also think the one place where they have intruded, where they have been, quote, colonialists in the, in, in the sense of the term we think of it, is by exploiting our DNA. They want our DNA for some reason or other. Whether they want, needed it when they got here is an open question. But certainly in the last 50, 60, 70 years, it seems to me that they have been, in effect, mining our DNA and, and breeding hybrids for whatever reason. I'm not sure that, that, that they don't harvest our DNA somehow, maybe from fetuses. I don't know. I, when I say I don't know, that's an understatement of the, mm-hmm. but yeah. I, as far as I know, I have never been abducted. But I know a few people that have. I, I take the phenomenon very seriously. I think it's probably the most important aspect of the whole UFO phenomenon. I think it is far more widespread than many people think. I, I know David Jacobs fairly well. I've never met him personally, but we've corresponded. By the way, he disagrees with me. Uh, David Jacobs, the author of Secret Life, mm-hmm. sure. one of the leading abduction. Jacobs uh, doesn't think that the phenomenon arrived much more than the turn the end of the 19th century. He doesn't see it reflected in folklore and mythology. Whereas, as you probably know, if you've uh, done, done your homework on me, that one of the things I'm interested in is comparative mythology, of course. And right. I find, for example, evidence in mythology of what I call the celestial war. Almost every ancient mythology, and not just Europe, has an account of a conflict between sky gods, between gods. In Greece, it's uh, the gods versus the titans. In the Scandinavian mythology, it's uh, the gods and the frost giants. Does this imply that there are different gods or different races of extraterrestrials that maybe don't like each other and maybe do things to each other? Yes. Okay. Uh, In fact, I think very tentatively there's enough evidence there to uh, allow one to to develop to speculate. What is it? I'm trying to surround this with the rhetoric of academic caution, as it's called sometimes. But that about seven to 8,000 years ago, there was what amounted to a colonial war between two extraterrestrials over domination of this planet, in much the same way that the French and the British fought over who was going to control India in the in the 18th century. Well, we know who won. The Brits won. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, colonial wars uh, were fought between France and England over uh, who would control North America, right? Who, <laughs> French and Indian War. And a, a lot of the indigenous population became collateral damage. And I think 
a lot of us were, a lot of our ancestors uh, were caught in the crossfire of this. And we get things like the legends of Sodom and Gomorrah. We get these accounts of disasters. And my, to carry this speculation further, I think it was, in, the end result was essentially inconclusive. I think they finally decided to call it to cooperate to some extent. So there are at least two groups here, I think. They probably are still sniping at each other, but I also think they probably cooperate uh, on a lot of common issues and that together they form the alien Raj. But I don't think they particularly like each other. I think they look different. I think we the, the, the two types that are most commonly described are the reptoid slash insectoids on the one hand and the grays on the other. Now, there are a couple of uh, hypotheses about that. Uh, Jacobs thinks that there is a basically a single polity here in that you have the grays and then on top of them, the reptoids, that the grays, in a sense, are subject to the reptoids. Among the grays, of course, there are two distinct types. They're the little ones that are very, that walk like automatons that are very, uh, and these are the ones probably that do not have any kind of reproductive organs or whatever. Why? Because they're androids. I think that they are made in the image of their makers. The taller grays are the ones that are typically, many of uh, the ducties report, as gendered. They can't see the differences, but they know that this one's female, that, but not the little ones. The little ones are, uh, are robots, are androids. They're manufactured. They're kind of, and in a sense, they're quasi-biological entities. And then there are the reptoids, the ones that wear the black capes sometimes and uh, are taller and have the scaly skins and so on. Now, the, the big question is, are, are these two separate groups who have, in a sense, kind of partitioned the planet or, or you know, some people are subject to one, some others are subject to the other, or is there a single hierarchy? Uh, as again, Jacobs thinks there's a single hierarchy. I'm not so sure. Uh, I think the uh, the reptoids, or the so-called, uh, may try to give the impression that they're on top, but that they aren't, that they aren't necessarily. Uh, I might add, David, that I published a novel. I tried to do this in a novel in uh, 2002, uh, published by the Invisible College Press, called Phase two, which is framed in this, only contemporary. It involves a love story between a hybrid alien and a human, a male abductee. But the background is a kind of cold war between these two groups. Uh, they cooperate, but uh, they're always trying to one-up each other. I'm taking literary license. I uh, attach the men in black to the reptoids. Not to the the others, by the way. I bring I bring them from, and this is this is a story. I bring them from uh, Zeta from Reticulus, uh, whereas I bring the uh, the Greys from uh, one of the stars that uh, or that form part of the Pleiades cluster. Why the Pleiades? Because the Pleiades have played such a consistent part in mythology 
that makes me think there is some connection. One of the groups comes from, and I, I use the star Pleione, the mother of the Pleiades. Mm-hmm. And one of my, astro- my astronomer friends, not astro- my astronomer friends, have said, "Yeah, but they're too new. How could they're only a hundred million years old? How could there be any life of evolved there?" I said, "Things are, you know, things happen." They may have migrated there from from somewhere else um, to a planet circling. I'm saying. Sure. May sure. Have, there may be a planet um, that Pleione is forty times hotter than the sun. Sure. Okay. The life zone is out about as far as Saturn. You know. I mean. So that's in fact how I said that. Well, well, something uh, that that we need to mention at this point. Scott, so anyway, this, this is this is a yeah. model, like a very tentative model. That, right. Uh, so so one of the one of the issues though, where this gets very complicated though, Scott, is that if we look at the history of just uh, the the range of different craft type and creature types that have been reported in the past 60 years. Mm-hmm. And listen, we assume that some majority of those reports are probably less than credible, but still, we end up seeing something along the lines of perhaps more than two different species interacting with us. And so well, one then and so now let's tie that into Okay. Uh, so I'm listening to that. Yeah. Well, well here, let's now now let's Pull this back to potential non-human interactions with human societies over the past few thousand years. And and in this piece that you wrote, Divine Rebels, Alien Dissidents, you, in a sense, specify, or perhaps I should say, I should use the term posit. You posit that we have Lucifer, we have Prometheus, we have Quetzalcoatl. That's right. And, That's what collateral. Yeah. <laughs> there's the academic aspect. <laughs> That's okay. I, 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 that. It's not a proper name that I would use a tremendous amount in conversation mm, with my friends. Well, especially when you're talking about Photoshop. You're doing a lecture on Photoshop right. and you say, right. hey, this dude named whatever his name is. Yeah, right. Well, well here's the thing. Um, you know, for example, uh, what happens is that now you've got these three stories that are part of mythology that potentially what and, and I just want to make sure I'm understanding this the right way so I'm sure you'll correct where you're essentially saying perhaps what we have here are actually abstractions of what might have been alien interactions with human societies perhaps three different explanations of, of a specific type of interaction that has uh, commonalities, one with each other. Yes. Um, In fact, I think we're dealing with essentially the same. What I think is that you have a what I call a pro-native uh, faction in the alien rise. In other words, those who are challenging, who have attempted to challenge the, the quote, prime directive, end quote, and have attempted to have gone native, in a sense, and who have attempted to assist human beings to give them knowledge. Uh, Prometheus is the most obvious. What does he do? He brings fire down from the sky. Well, okay, he's a lightning bolt. Probably that these things are never, they're all multi-layered. But I think underlying the Prometheus figure is possibly a rebel alien, a rebel from the, uh, and he's punished, isn't he? You know the man. Oh yeah. Rebels against common established the That's divine right. establishment. Right. The same thing. If you look at Lucifer, clearly, uh, yes, he's got a bad name. But what does he do? He leads a rebellion against the divine authority, and he comes down in the form of the serpent, 
and gives knowledge to human beings. He makes them more than just dumb creatures. The act of being good, supposedly, giving humankind the information they need to advance, become better people, that's a bad thing because the entities in control are losing control. But more than that, they're interfering. They're interfering with the natural order of things. Ah, okay. Well, that also may be the bad thing if you look at the prime directive. Sure. That's right. They're they're, they're violating the prime directive. Quetzalcoatl is the uh, ancient Mesoamerican figure, the, the Maya called him Kukulkan, who was a culture bearer. He brought uh, inventions, he brought the ability to write, etc., to uh, a lot of technological, and then he is forced to disappear, mm. goes away. He is, in a sense, withdrawn. Or they throw uh, him out, say, you know, bud, you out. did the wrong thing, we can't it's have you interfering, goes. leave. Exactly. Okay. He's, he's a, uh, a, a culture bearer, and Lucifer is essentially the same. Hey listeners, did you know that Fate is the oldest and best-known publication on the paranormal? Well, since 1948, Fate has provided their readers with fascinating in-depth articles on subjects like psychics and spiritualists, ghosts and hauntings, UFOs and aliens, as well as readers' true personal mystical experiences. For under $20, you can keep up with all the latest information. To subscribe, call now at one 800 728 2730 or visit Fate's website at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. So what are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. You're in the Paracast with Uh, the Paracats with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney, we have Scott Littleton. And we have migrated from UFOs in 1942 to UFOs in ancient history. And the thing I think David would agree with me here to explore in this remaining 16, 17 minutes is the presence of so-called alien visitors today. So the races that were involved in all this stuff way back when would they be interested in were they interested so much to stay around are they participating in our progress or lack thereof now uh, yeah well, oh yeah I think they're very much present I think they are again I think the prime directive which I call in my I call my novel where I developed this phase two uh, we are still in phase one. My my character, my central character, a female, is uh, a rebel. Uh, she falls in love with a 
an abductee who, what else, he's an anthropologist, on a dig, but anyway, he's abducted and they have, well, are you familiar, some of your readers might be, with the V.S. Boas, V.S. Boas case? Oh, the, that was, I remember reading about that Antonio case back in the 70s, absolutely. Exactly, hey, no, you 1957. Know, you got to be interested, you got to be interested in the alien sex stories, that's always good. Right, in 1857, 19, pardon me, wrong, wrong century there, 1957, this young Brazilian farmer in southern Brazil was abducted off of his tractor at night, had sex with a, a beautiful, exotic alien, but she wasn't quite, she wasn't a complete grace. She had to have been a hybrid. And uh, when he leaves, when they put him back on his, before they put him back on his tractor, she pats her stomach and points up to the sky. They don't have any conversation. In fact, she kind of growls at him. And a lot of, some researchers put this down to sort of machismo run rampant, but Apparently not. Uh, it's, I think, a very good case. He was studied intensively by Fontes and others, and I know a lot of anthropologists have, or a UFO of people, uh, serious, serious students of the UFO, take this very seriously. It's probably, people say that the Betty and Barney Hill case is the first abduction. No, I would say the first clear-cut abduction case is V.S. Boas in Brazil. Well, my story, what I occurred to me is what if V.S. Boas met this female in disguise as a human 10 years later with a little boy in tow? Right? Mm. And that's the premise of the story of, of mm -hmm. the novel. But the background involves this whole notion of the rebel the rebel alien, uh, the pro-native faction, the faction that wants to start phase two, which is open and uh, exchange of technology, and uh, she's uh, fighting in a uh, conservative establishment. And of course, what they call the others—that is, the uh, the reptoids—are of course anything that will uh, uh, hurt the the Pleiadians is is fair game. So, yes, this is this is literary license. But yeah, I try to base the story, base the novel, and I say as much in an afterword on. The serious, well, the serious UFO literature as much as I can, and I, I lead off by saying at the end this story was largely was inspired by the V.S. Boas case. Okay, well let's look and, at the current stuff and, here as we yeah, get yeah. into our waning moments, and that is looking at it today. We still have, obviously, we've had abductions, although I haven't heard of many in recent years, but we've certainly had... Oh, they're, all, they're going on all the time. Sure, we've had ongoing abductions. Yeah. We've yeah. had ongoing sightings. So we assume that these various factions or races are still involved in observing us. Yes. Okay, so are they still battling each other? I mean, first of all, what leads you to believe today that they're still here and still doing this stuff other than just visiting us and doing an occasional abduction. Oh, I, I, because the uh, if you look at the abduction literature, the number you get the number of people accounts, for example, you get almost a, an assembly line taking of eggs and you have people reporting uh, chained rooms probably in bases somewhere, subterranean bases. As far as they can see, table after the couch ever, table after table after table of of abductee undergoing physical exam, semen extraction, ovum, 
and the the fetuses in the tanks. I don't. Again, I'm assuming some knowledge on the part of your some knowledge of mm -hmm. the literature. Oh yeah. Uh, the fetuses in the holding tanks and so on. This goes on and on steadily. Uh, this is an ongoing. Uh, somebody suggested that in uh, North America, it may the abduction ratio may be one out of forty. Whoa, whoa, whoa! Pretty high, but certainly uh, I would go maybe a one out of certainly one uh, one out of a thousand. Okay, but if they're abducting millions of people, there has <laughs> yep. to be a lot of these aliens running loose. Yeah, there. I think there probably are enough teams out there. Uh, I think they're doing it. Uh, they're doing it selectively. They are. If you are an abductee, there's a very strong chance that either your mother or your father or your grandfather was also had also these strange. So they focus on families. Yes, that much is. If anything has come clear, that has. Okay. Any particular racial or ethnic background? No, okay. No, no, it seems to cut across. Although my hunch is they're probably more interested in the more complex. Uh, cultures. We're, UFOs have turned up in New Guinea sure. and Aboriginal Australia. Yeah, I'm sure they're they're sampling steadily. Okay, we need they to kind of wind this down. Them. So I wanted to kind of just yeah. move yeah. into maybe kind of a summary of this here. What do okay. we do today in 2008 or whenever you folks out there hear the show? Maybe it'll be still available online ten years from now. Okay, what do we do today to get more information to prove this is what's going on? Well, I would uh, let me start by saying that I think we need to pry it out of the government. I'm among those who is convinced that buried deep in the government uh, still is something that we can call loosely MJ-12. I very much support Stan Friedman on this. I think that it's real. I think that there has been a, they, uh, God knows what they call it today, uh, but some kind of a very in deeply embedded committee uh, using very black funds for the last 50, 60 years that has in effect been liaison. So I think we, the government, some people in this and other governments, I think, I don't think it's just this government, I think the British government, probably the Russian, maybe even the Japanese government, know a hell of a lot more about what's going on than, and now, yes, this is a, this would be a conspiracy theory in terms of silence. And I think that may go back even before uh, February 25th, 1942, because of, as we, we, we talked earlier about how they were uh, immediately, they shut, hushed it up. Why are they hushing it up? I think there are two possibilities. One, of course, is that they're afraid nobody wants to say, you know, hey, we can't defend the United States and so on. The second would be what's it going to do to the economy? We're going down the toilet anyway right now. Uh, it would totally upset or traditional or organized religion. That's probably true. We would probably get a lot of nativistic cargo cult, uh, ghost dance type nativistic movements, as we anthropologists call it, propping up. I mean, if it suddenly became common knowledge and they're flying around, right? Uh, very visible. Well, certainly if it uh, became common the knowledge. Reason, Go ahead. The third reason is probably just as important as that the aliens themselves don't want to say on pain of whatever, don't talk. So I think it's a combination of all of them. I, I think that the aliens themselves, the alien Raj itself, 
uh, is has enjoined secrecy here. So I think it's a it's a it's a combination of the three. Courts. Okay, so they're going to the government saying. Look, guys, you shut up, otherwise we'll do something that you won't like. Or uh, if you, or we'll, on the, the, the cookie, the cookie side of it is we will give you uh, fiber optics, we will give you uh, some trinkets, right? Like, from their standpoint, like what bought Manhattan Island, probably. Some trinkets. Uh, are you familiar, I'm sure you are, with Phil Corso's book? Oh, but of Day course. After. Oh, no. boy, yes. We, oh, yeah. Yes. I take it seriously. There are some there are some problems. I agree. There are some uh, some uh, issues there, but that kind of thing. In other words, but I, he, but he's saying it came from Roswell. I'm saying that it may come. I think we've been in some kind of cahoots, and this is uh, ever since Eisenhower met at Edwards Air Force Base in April of 1954 and signed a treaty that has never been ratified, believe me, with these creatures, giving them carte blanche to abduct, to uh, mutilate cattle, to uh, why? Because cattle... In fact, I think the cattle mutilations maybe were all part of a negotiation because bovine reproductive systems are quite analogous to human, and we may have said, okay... Uh, don't do it to humans. Do it to cows. Yeah, but how many cows do we have to abduct? If I'm an alien, I do I have to abduct one out of every thousand of the no. human beings? Or why do I have to do but, all this? No, 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 no. Now toss that aside for a minute. What is uh, this? Is the problem I have with this stuff? Yeah. Is the the idea why, that somehow? Why doing it? No, 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 no. Back up for a minute. Eisenhower signs an accord with the aliens. I I don't buy it. I don't buy it because you're you're assuming there that uh, somehow there's going to be a legal document that the aliens feel compelled to sign no. a, a legal piece of paperwork with the humans. I, I no no no. I think you're you're being too literal. I think it was an agreement, a ta- an agreement. They they had some negotiation. They had a negotiation deep in the. Well, here, here's the problem with that. Well, you see, here's where i got to shoot this one down. Because, well, it's real simple. From what, from what we know about abductions, it appears that human beings don't have much defense in terms of uh, psychological shielding from uh, what appears to be some sort of psychic control of our emotions and our memories. So, That's true. Yeah, why would these aliens need cooperation? I think there was more to that than, than that. Uh, there's some evidence, evidence quote, that mm-hmm. our early radar systems were jamming their controls, uh, that they were having some problems, that we were also occasionally shooting them down, particularly in the era, in other words, around the Washington, D.C., the famous 1952, in that, from 47 through 50 to the early 50s that there were some that we we were uh, causing them some problems and i think the whole thing is look we'll give you a, we'll we'll give you a better array we'll give you some stuff that real some goodies and in return we simply want to conduct our research and uh which will involve abducting but not injuring people and for the most part, that's true. Some people have been hurt, but for the overwhelming majority of abductees are not physically mistreated. And so they've kept that part of the bargain. And uh, 
So don't interfere, don't announce our presence, and probably with the also the veiled threat that if you do, well, uh, you know, we'll blow up one of your airliners, you know. <laughs> I, seriously, no, I, I, I think that a, a sort of a modus vivendi was achieved, and I think it's been kind of guiding. Well, I think there's, there's, there is some evidence that there, and I say evidence, there is some speculation that the treaty, whatever it is, I put quotes around it, was renegotiated in the mid-60s, and that there, we are in period, certain people are in periodic touch with the Raj, and, but the last thing they wanted, in other words, even if they wanted to break the Sikh code, I think maybe they would be stopped. Hmm. You know what? This is so fascinating that we have to explore this. Well, this is one. This is speculation. Obviously, if obviously. I, hey, we have just about a minute left. If I had a smoking gun, I would be shooting. Okay, before we shoot the smoking gun or even find yeah, a smoking sure. gun, Scott, yeah. tell our listeners if they want to find more about the things you do and write about. Do you have a site or someplace they can yes, go? Yes, they do. Uh, you, can go, they, you can go to my, uh, my own website, which is... I'll give it to you. Uh, it's. I'll tell you what. Right, it's a complicated website. Let me tell you this. What I have is a link to your site direct at thepowercast.com, so listeners can check it out there. That's a good idea. It's, it's not hard to get to. Right, and then they can check out the further literature. Scott yeah, Littleton, we appreciate your historical research, your knowledge, and you've opened up many vistas where we have to explore things further. We want to thank you for joining us this week on The Powercast. Well, thank you very much. Enjoy it. Thanks. We really appreciate your taking the time. The Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney is a production of Making the Impossible Incorporated. Join us next week for a new adventure in The Paracast.